uh, to Ezra chapter 9. Uh, we have two chapters in uh, Ezra 9 and Ezra 10 uh, left in the book of Ezra, but of course we're dealing uh, with Ezra and Nehemiah as a, as a single unit, uh, which I believe it originally was. I've explained that to you before. Um, and as we come towards the end of Ezra, we come to a tricky passage. I tell my um, ministry colleagues that I'm preaching through Ezra, and they're like, what do you do with Ezra 9 and 10? That's the sort of conversations they, they, we, we talk about, because it's difficult, and you'll see why it's difficult, particularly next week. But this week, uh, we're looking at chapter uh, 9. We have read uh, the, the stories or, or heard uh, them on the news. Uh, young suicide bomber radicalized online by ISIS blows himself up and many others. When someone brought up in the United Kingdom with the expected values, as we sort of talk like, of someone from our shores, but who has been influenced and indeed groomed and indeed brainwashed uh, to a completely different uh, set of agendas, who becomes a weapon that kills many who are innocent. And such a thing is um, one of the scourges of our modern world. Isn't that right? But it's not really ISIS this morning in Ezra chapter 9, but more of a crisis. A crisis. Not outside uh, God's people, like the opposition they, they faced uh, from Samaritans, indeed, and also building officials back in the earlier chapters, but a crisis on the inside. A crisis among the people. Let's talk about intermarriage. After the completion of the temple, after a period of four months, we established that from, from chapter 10, verse 9, if you're interested. But after that period of time, information reaches Ezra, God's man in this place, the leader. And it's information that should concern him. Verse 1 it tells us that officials approached him and they told him that some of the people have taken wives for themselves from the people of the lands. That's what we read. Who are these people? Well, uh, these guilty people, uh, the way it's put, are not recent arrivals, uh, the way this is sort of worded. It's those from either wave one or wave two who are already in the land. Who exactly is it? Well, it's, it's told to us. The people of Israel is called that. Uh, it's the, the, the Levites and the priests, verse one, and the officials and the chief men in verse two. It's basically everyone's involved, more or less. Shockingly, it is the leaders, we're told, who are foremost in this. Foremost is the way it's put. Clearly not the same officials who daubed them in to, to Ezra, but shockingly, officials nonetheless are heavily involved in this. Those leaders who should especially know better, but sadly they do not. They are taking wives for themselves and indeed for their sons from the people of the land. It's widespread. It's commonplace. Yes, the first one or two probably raised a few eyebrows when it happened, but it's just, yeah, probably an accepted norm now in among them. No big deal. Where are these wives from? We're told uh, they're from the people of the land, the, the idolatrous nations around. They're then listed, Canaanites and Hittites and Perizzites and Jebusites and Ammonites and Moabites and Egyptians and Amorites. And those people groups kind of roll off the tongue if you read your Old Testament because they're mentioned quite often like that, aren't they? So often is the repeated warnings about them. You'll recall that one of Israel's rules was to drive the nations, seven of them in fact, uh, out of the land that the Lord God had given them as a gift after the exodus uh, from Egypt. 
And yes, she may well be the most down-to-earth, nicest Amorite the world has ever known, with a pretty face to match. And the parents may well be salt-of-the-earth people, but God is very, very clear. Deuteronomy 7 verse 1 says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Ammonites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show them so no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Why? That's the question the children always ask, isn't it? Why? Why the children of God ask their father? Why? Well, it's, look how it's put in verse 1. Because of their abominations. Abominations. Now, this has nothing to do with homosexuality. Of course, that's something that's taken, that takes up most of the use of that, that word in the modern world, Right? It's, it's, it's nothing to do with that. No, no in, in this place, it refers, to, it refers to false worship. It refers to false gods. It refers to reprehensible practices. Listen to Deuteronomy 12, 31. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. You hear it? False worship, every practice that you can think of that God hates, and even and even child sacrifice. By the way, when evil hits its height, the children always suffer. Did you know that? Think of think of the bombing of apartment blocks. Think of abortion. Think of gender confusion and accepting that we Johnny thinks he's a girl. The children always suffer. When evil reaches its height. Exodus 34 says that they will be a snare to you, these foreign wives. It will be a trap. You won't easily escape it. Shamima Begum uh, is, is trapped. She's a famous young British Muslim woman uh, who at the age of 15 in 2015 left school with some of, her some of her friends to fly to Turkey and then cross the border to Syria. She married an ISIS fighter and then, well, it appears, regretted it because she's had many uh, subsequent attempts uh, to return to the UK and, 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 and failed to do so. The, the foreign secretary even revoked her British citizenship this was despite her claim that she held British values now. You know, it's the language. But she's just too radicalized, we reckon. It's a trap, Shamima, and you're stuck in it. We're afraid. They won't bring her back. They won't let her back. It's a deadly trap. Look at how the problem is stated in verse 1. They have not separated themselves from the people's. This intermarriage is stated as an issue of separation. It's an issue of influence. Isn't that the way that, that, that works? It was like that in Deuteronomy 20, verse 18. They may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done to their gods. And so you would sin against the Lord your God. In other words, if you, if you marry them, they're, they're going to teach you stuff. They're going to teach you stuff. 
No, it's not just okay to add another God onto your list of gods for there's only room for one. It's, It's never been okay to do that. And yes, you may start off strong with wonderful good intentions, but soon and very soon the decline is on. The influence starts to bite. Gravity works in that direction because the one standing on top of the spiritual mountain will find it much harder to drag the one below her than it will be for the one below to drag him down. You get the idea? Gravity works that way. And yes, God may use you to convert that unsaved uh, potential husband or wife. But equally, he may not. And he may equally allow the consequences of your disobedience to take its toll on your life. That's more possible, more likely. It has the potential to make spiritual shipwreck of your faith, as Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 1 verse 19. Very clear teaching in our New Testament. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, very famous. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? No, marry a real man. We saw this a few weeks ago. Marry a godly man who can lead you and your home. Marry a godly woman. Marry a woman who you can lead in the direction of Christ. Don't marry an unbeliever or someone who you doubt is a believer on the basis of the available evidence, regardless of what it says on the tin. It was an issue of separation. So it was an issue of holiness, which is, of course, is what separation is. Be holy for I am holy, says the Lord. And so the people must be separate, but they weren't being separate. Maybe you read these words and you think that this limitation seems a little bit racist for want of a better word the language of verse 2 look at the language mixing your race with the people of the land creates more than a little doesn't it with the modern modern mind the, the, the days we live in but it but it's not about race it's about the holy race Emphasis on holy. That word race is is offspring or seed, which is the word that comes from the promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12. To your offspring, to your race, I will give this land. Abraham, to whom, of course, it was promised he would be a blessing to all the nations, not just one nation. And do also remember, only a few uh, chapters ago, when, when, they were, when they were gathering to eat the Passover and worship at the temple in Jerusalem, who was welcome? Who was welcome? Everyone with one proviso, chapter 6, 21, it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord God, the God of Israel. Come along, absolutely. You're welcome. But you know what? You've got to separate yourself. You've got to come away from the uncleanness and join the one true God only worshipers. This is not about your birth certificate. This is about your holiness. This is about who you worship and you must worship and who you must worship alone. For back at the time of of Joshua, the land was impure, Ezra says, verse 11. And the people were impure and, and their uncleanness fills the land, we're told. Fills the land. Think about that language. Strong language. 
fills the land, and it's the same in Ezra's day. They must not embrace the impurity or let the slow creep of the frog in the increasingly boiling water pass them by. You know the story of the frog? You throw him right into the boiling water, he'll jump right out. You put him into the cold water and turn up the heat, he'll sit there until he boils to death because he doesn't realize the slow creep of being in a godless world is easy to fall for. But God's people are to be different, separate, and pure. They are not to intermarry. That's the very clear understanding here, isn't it? But of course they had. Of course they had. That's the problem. What's going to be done? Secondly, notice intercession this morning. Intermarriage now, intercession. Armed with the information, Ezra, like any godly leader, well, he's forced to act, isn't he? He cannot ignore this. Yes, short term, that's going to give him bother. That's going to give him a headache. He'd probably be tossing and turning on the pillow tonight because he doesn't quite know what he's going to do about it. But he has to act. Because like with your elders, when we hear credible evidence of someone engaged in grievous sin among us, we cannot ignore it. Because that would be easier short term, yes. But it will come back to bite down the line and worse. For sin left unchecked, well, it only heads one way, and that's down and down the hill and down the hill to the graveyard. That's where it goes. And so Ezra does what every godly leader does. He tears his clothes and he tears his hair out and his beard. (laughs) No, but seriously. But seriously. What he does here is important because he's appalled, isn't he? That's the language. He's appalled. That's what we're told. But what we need to understand from this ancient cultural act that perhaps we don't get is that Ezra is also mourning. That's what he's doing. Think about Job. Remember Job? He's he's, he's sitting at the town rubbish tip at the fire and the ashes, and he's mourning. And he's mourning all that he's lost. Because he's lost almost everything, apart from what really matters. Ezra is mourning too. He's mourning what's been lost that's why he rips his cloak and his clothes. He's appalled. He's, but, but it's more about mourning. He's, he's not relaxed about this, is he? Not a bit. It affects him greatly. Look at his very public actions. He tears his clothes in grief. He removes his hair and his beard as a sign of humiliation, just like, just like with Job. And he fasts. That's a sign of mourning too. And he mourns the loss of relationship with God. That's what's lost here, isn't it? That's what's lost every time God's people sin. And you say, you say, why so? You say, Ezra hasn't married a Hittite or a Jebusite, has he? Am I missing something here? It wasn't him. He could say, not my bad, to use modern idiom, right? But no. And, and, and here, here, of course, is our, and I use that word very carefully, our individualistic culture rubbing off on us, okay? Let me ask you a question. What is the root of happiness? Well, there's a big one. Maybe we should have that as the ultimate question, number seven. It's not on the list, right? What's the root of happiness? How would you answer that? Hmm, difficult one. You ask our culture, right? You know what they would say? Personal fulfillment, 
They'd say, finding yourself. They'd say, finding your authentic self. Whatever that means, maybe in terms of sexuality or in terms of gender or making a gender up just for you, something like that. Just finding yourself. That would be the root of happiness. But if you asked your great-grandfather, he wouldn't have said that. No, he knew no such concept. No, he, he, knew, he knew duty and he knew commitment to his family and to his community as the route to happiness because that's where his purpose was. That, that, was, that was what he was there for, which is one and the same thing as far as he was concerned. You see, there, there are still people in our world who think this way. I was reading about uh, people who grew up in, on the African continent who, who find the concept of going for a walk on your own as a very strange idea. I like going for a walk on my own. I guess many of us do. To this people group in the African continent, very strange idea, they think. Why is that? Is it because it's dangerous? No, it's not because of that. It's that even if you're an introvert, right, you walk in a group and you say nothing to anybody because you know what? We're a community. Isn't that interesting? I thought that was very interesting. Because you're a we. You're not an I. You're part of something. You're part of the community. In recent decades, we have embraced the individualism without really noticing. That's what I think. We said, you know, don't go to dances, don't go to theaters, don't wear trousers. But this sort of slid in without anyone really noticing. This sort of worldliness. You see, it's put like this, your own personal savior. That's how salvation's put. Christian life is put as finding God's will for your life. Do you hear it? Going to heaven is called reaching your reward. Do you hear it? And there's truth in each of those statements, but it's the emphasis. Do you hear the emphasis? The me emphasis, the I emphasis. But biblically, it's not me. Biblically, it's we and it's us language. It's the community of believers. You read Paul's letters and you tell me which one it is because it's we. It's we. It's us. We're together. It's, it's not just a collection of eyes. It's a, it's a community of, of, of we. We're one. Ezra gathered with all who trembled at the word of God we read. All those who realized the seriousness of this, this, this mixed marriage situation, right? And he, and he fasts at the evening sacrifice. And, and then in verse 7, his posture changes. He, he, verse 5, sorry. He, he falls to his knees and he spreads his hands out in the way the ancient world would have prayed. Okay? And he prays and his, and his, and his prayer of intercession and confession, well, it goes on for the rest of the chapter. We have it for us. And yes, we are responsible for our own sins. That is a biblical principle for sure. You know the other EZ book in the Bible, Ezekiel? Well, it talks about this. Uh, There's a whole chapter in chapter 18. You know, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, and the father shall not suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Right? Absolutely. But, But notice the solidarity of Ezra with his people. Did you notice it? He's mourning because the people have sinned. And he's part of the people. Notice the language of his prayer. I am ashamed. In his prayer, he shares their shame. 
He prays, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. He isn't finger pointing and saying, you know, they did this, God, and, 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 and it's awful what they've done. He shares in their iniquity. He prays from, from the, day, the days of our father until now we have, we have been in great guilt. He shares in their guilt. He doesn't just blame the past. Every generation blames the one before, sang Mike and the mechanics in the 80s, right? That, that's what we do. We, we say, you know, if only my parents had done a better job of, 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 of watching my homework, I'd, I'd have got better grades and I'd have had a better job. If only my parents hadn't broken up in their marriage, I would have, I would have been more emotionally stable. And No, Ezra doesn't say if only our parents hadn't sinned so badly, we wouldn't have been in Babylon and it's all their fault. He says, we. He says, we have forsaken your commandments. Because it's a we. God brought the dead to life, he says. He, he revived them from their slavery. That's the language of dead to living that he uses. Revived. Which is the story of salvation, isn't it? It's revival. It's the idea that, that God takes the dead and then makes them alive. We've been saved by God's action and by God's good grace. We, we found the way because he showed us the way. And the way and the truth and the life is Christ. And, and we've been made holy in Christ. And we are the community of believers. We're different. We're transformed. And we'll, we'll stick together. And we love one another. And we'll serve one another. And you see, what, what we believe is culture busting. And so it must be. Yes, he retells the story of the faithless covenant breaking that's gone on before them that's got them there. But he doesn't shift the blame in it. The sin is present tense, and it always is. It's, it's sin among the believers, which is a timely reminder for us that, that we're not immune, isn't it? Not a bit. Not yet. Glorification's coming. We'll talk about it tonight, but we're not immune yet. We're still equipped with that sinful nature, and it's serious. Ezra is not culpable. Now, he's not perfect. He's not sinless, Ezra. He's still a sinner. But he's not culpable of this grievous transgression that he's talking about. But he's a faithful priest because he fully identifies with the sin and guilt and punishment of his people. So he's a, he's a great intercessor, isn't he? Pointing, of course, to the greater one. And, and, he, and he numbers himself with the transgressors even though he's not a transgressor. You see, which points to the one who, who numbers himself with the transgressors. Isaiah chapter 53. I, of course, speak about Jesus. The intercession. Finally, let's talk about the internal affair. The commandment of Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy chapter 7 is, is crystal clear. They should not do this. They should not marry from these tribes. Surrounding nations. Ezra summarizes this in sort of snippets from various passages. It's found in verse 11 and 12. Therefore, do not give your daughters to the sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. From the prophet Moses in the books of the law. He's taking little bits from here and there. It's, it's, it's a summary of Bible teaching. It's a good summary. And, of course, Ezra was an expert in the law. Remember what King Artaxerxes sends him to do? 
when he sends him back to the land of Israel. Well, he gives him this, this rule, doesn't he, to, to practice and teach the law to others. And what better example can he have to do his job than this? By, by making inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God. Well, he, he's done that and, and he's found this crisis. He's doing his job. It's time to act. It's time to act. Please don't read this this morning as a mere surface matter. Please don't understand this as some sort of small thing that one or two people have gotten themselves unsaved girlfriends and married them. And the leaders have just sort of turned a blind eye. No. No, this is much worse. The outside has gotten inside. The people outside have been influencing the people inside. Intermarriage has the potential to dissolve the entire people of God into the surrounding culture, and they dis then they disappear. And that strips God's people of their separateness. And that's a major problem, because how can you win the world for Jesus if you become the world? Become like them and sort of slip the message in. Now you've lost, it, you've lost the battle. You've lost it all. Notice the remnant language throughout the rest of these verses. Mentioned several times. Twice, Ezra speaks about the escaped remnant as evidence of God's faithful love to, to his people. He's not given them what they deserve. I like that phrase. He's not given us what we deserve. Verse 13. Do you remember that, brothers and sisters? He's not given us what we deserve. What we deserve is... Is eternal punishment. What we deserve is hell. Not just a ticking off or some sort of a life sentence that we get out at the end. We deserve the whole, the whole, the whole gambit of God's punishment against us. That's what we deserve. We haven't got that. But the remnant has been saved. They've been taken from those in Babylon, those still in Babylon, and brought to the promised land. They're the special ones. They're God's people in the land. But they're not behaving like a remnant. They're not behaving like a remnant. They're, they're being unfaithful. They're sinning the camp and it's all over the place. And it's not the outside attacking them. It's not persecution. It's not the devil directly. I'm sure he's involved. It, it, it's, it's inside. And it's not surface. It's deep and it's affecting their faith. How do you know? Well, Ezra uses the words faithlessness twice in verse 2 and verse 4 to tell us that this actually cuts real deep. By marrying wives from the surrounding nations or getting wives for their sons, they are being unfaithful. That's the language, isn't it? There's not, this is nothing short of faithlessness. God and his people are in a marriage, a covenant, a giving of themselves to one another. In the book of Hosea, all faithlessness is described in the language of infidelity. In other words, God's people are having an affair with the world. The language of infidelity. God's people are wandering off and marrying unbelievers, marrying pagans who will not return to God, who, who still hold their own religion, carrying, certainly they're, they're not separating themselves from the world. They're not being the remnant they've called themselves to be. Now, we'll talk next week about the New Testament teaching, how you're not supposed to uh, divorce your unsaved spouse right now. That's not what we're talking about. 
This is what we're talking about this morning, and we'll talk about that further. But the important thing here is purity, right? The, the important matter here is purity, because we've got to ask ourselves, in the big scheme, what is our relationship with the world? Are we, are we influenced? Because I maintain we are more influenced than we realize. But we cannot blame the generation before. No, we're culpable. We are the remnant. We are God's revived people in the land. And we're, but are we behaving like the remnant? I've got a, a quote from a, a book I've been reading. It's really helpful. It's called Being the Bad Guys by Stephen McAlpine. He's an Australian guy. This is what he says. My church network, um, the first part's on my screen only, Graham, so just you keep that there, that's great. My church network has traditionally only held evening services. That's popular for many people in our setting, but it also resulted in what we call second service Christians. Those who attend a morning service elsewhere as their primary church and then come to us in the evening, well, it's hard to get someone to serve and give and be discipled to be more like Christ when they are second service Christians. You get the idea. But, here we go, the reality today is that all Christians are second service Christians. All of us are immersed in a highly effective discipleship program offered by our culture Monday through Saturday. In everything from our phones to Netflix to advertising and news items, we are being offered a discipleship program that invites us to a completely different way of life, mediated to us through a dazzling array of images, sounds, stories, and suggestions. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? When you think of it in those terms. It's the slow creep, isn't it? The discipleship program. That's a word we use in church to explain how we teach people the ways of Jesus. Well, we're being taught the ways of the world. Slowly, aren't we? Makes you think, doesn't it? That slow creep away from in the, in the, in the pot, the boiling water with the frog. When we see another gay couple in an advertisement on television and it's normalized now. Does it matter to us? Is it, is it still wrong? Even if, it's our, even if it's our relative that we know in such a relationship, even if they're nice people, of course many of them are nice people, may very well be the case. When we hear just another swear word or someone taking God's name in vain because it's normal now, when we think everyone's doing that and not Jesus makes it crystal clear what I should do. You see? It's time to waken from our sleep, if we're asleep. <laughs> the worldliness discipleship program is real. We're being influenced. I'm being influenced. You're being influenced. We're being radicalized, right? That's what it is. We need to reset the information flow. We need more Bible, less phone, I reckon. You can have your Bible on the phone, of course. We need church family and less me time. We need to realize that we're being influenced all the time. We need to prioritize that good and godly influence of his word and prayer and, and good Christian books and blogs and YouTube videos that are uh, edifying because the war is on for your mind. Guard your heart. Let's have this last verse. Keep your heart with all diligence. For from it flows the spring of life. What have, we, what have we got on the screen, Graham? Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. That's the Christian standard Bible. Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life.
Let's pray. Let's pray.